James, good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Where do we find you today? Uh, just at my office in the South Bay. And uh, yeah, excited to to get the day going. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Good energy. I like that. I like that. So James, uh, you and I have known each other for several years now uh, from the industry, but uh, for our listeners, kind of by way of introduction, tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and kind of how your, you know, the winding road of your career got you through the, you know, retail world where, where, you know, you are now. Absolutely. I started in the business uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, with a boutique firm called Terranomics. And through a series of mergers and acquisitions, we ended up in the final form of Cushman & Wakefield. And that company, we were fortunate enough to put together a consortium, which ended up uh, going into a public offering and became one of the big three CRE firms uh, globally, uh, which was a fun ride. I managed the Western United States uh, uh, for the retail platform as a player coach. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, about a month ago, decided to pivot, to, uh, go back to my roots and uh, create a boutique retail firm. Okay. <laughs> so kind of making a full circle there, right? Absolutely. James, as you look at your organization and the way that you guys are going to be doing what you're going to be doing, tell us a, tell us a little bit about your, your approach to the, to the work and how you're going to do it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we really start from the ground up and, and that begins with seeking to understand the goals and objectives of our clients, whoever that may be. While we listen with care and intent, we're, again, focused on the why, uh, because ultimately our goal, their success is our success. We proceed by educating them on our process and how we will reach their objectives through a very thoughtful and intentional strategy and correlating that with timelines. Uh, but ultimately, this gives us the opportunity to set realistic expectations from the, the beginning of the relationship and that we can move forward in alignment. But, you know, ultimately we feel that, you know, again, as we discussed earlier with regards to technology, we have the best in class ad- analytics to help us with, call it the art of our execution, uh, because it is a, a combination of both science and art. The science helps us, you know, formulate a strategy, but not ultimately execute the strategy but really, it's the art portion and the qualitative information that we can provide uh, to really help them realize their goals. But really, it's a very systematic approach that has been and will be uh, and continues to be the backbone of our client success in their retail positioning and or uh, merchandising of a project. Retail, really, in our eyes, is such an integral part of all of our communities, directly impacts the human experience on how we shop live and engage with our immediate surroundings and uh, uh, external surroundings. But ultimately, we see a storefront as a living organism, really from its impact on jobs, supply chains, and ultimately the community around it. And we like to view our roles as connectors and placemakers. And we really uh, relish in that opportunity to curate against some of the most unique and engaging retail environments, both locally and nationally. It's a boots-on-the-ground approach uh, on how we do it, but we take very seriously that, that role that we play. And tell us a little bit about your experience, not just across the region, but also the types of retail that you, that you worked with and the types of clients that you served. Sure. That's a great question. I really have been focused, I would say hyper-focused on the retail space. So I've stayed in my lane uh, my entire career. I wanted to be 
an expert uh, in the field uh, rather than try to be sort of a master of nothing. <laughs> it's hard yeah. to, uh, even within the CRE space, and when I say CRE, the commercial real estate industry, if you will, and, you know, there's obviously various service lines from industrial to office to capital markets, multifamily. And uh, despite all being next to each other so closely, they're all uh, incredibly different. And retail on its own uh, is, is one that uh, I was very drawn to, uh, obviously continue to dive deeper into. It's a space that I, I've just really enjoyed. But primarily, most of my business is focused in Northern California. Okay. So I control a little bit over 15 million square feet of retail product in this market. Uh, but the tenant representation work that I do, I do both locally and nationally. But really, the types of retail projects on the agency side uh, that I focus on are primarily opener lifestyle centers, uh, grocery anchor shopping centers, power centers, and street front environments. And then as far as tenants go, I represent everyone from large box tenants all the way down to sub anchor tenants, you know, financial institutions down to Michelin star restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So James, as I don't need to tell you this, but as you know, you and I know really well, even before the COVID pandemic, you know, retail has been kind of going through a bit of a you know, rough patch and trying to sort of reinvent itself uh, compared to some other countries in the in the world. The U.S. certainly has more retail per capita than I think, you know, any other country, any other region, right? Give us sort of a sense of kind of pre-COVID, you know, what were some of the, you know, drivers and what were some of the things where you felt the industry was going to transform? And then sort of how did that get accelerated through, you know, 2020? Absolutely. And again, great question. Pre-COVID, I think there was uh, you know a lot of headlines uh, that read in the form of a you know how about the retail apocalypse and the really that collision between e-commerce versus brick and mortar and uh, unfortunately the media does focus on the negative rather than the positive uh, in, in all matters really uh, but retail was definitely in a state of change uh, but in in my mind it was metamorphosizing so it was really. Uh, in my opinion, becoming a ve better version of itself uh, pre-COVID. And again, uh, what COVID did was just, uh, to your point, just accelerated that process. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, over time, really, when you look at real estate in general, you're always really focused on the highest and best use. So if you look at a building or a piece of land or, or whatever it is you may be analyzing, the first and foremost, you know, the purpose is really to establish the highest and best use. And over time... You know, retail may not always be the highest and best use, even though traditionally it may have always been there. Uh, but that also goes for industrial. That also goes for office. That also goes for every other product type. So it's not it's not exclusive to retail. But retail, because, again, of the really, again, that collision with e-commerce, which has uh, really just skyrocketed in the last decade, obviously, with companies like Apple and Facebook and Amazon entering the world, if you will, in their, in their call it their latest form. Yeah. But what people don't realize is that uh, the, those, those two are, are not adversarial as much as they are complementary. And so what was happening pre-COVID was really more of a, an evolution and learning curve uh, for a lot of retailers to understand and implement and create verticals to create a harmonious environment for the to live together 
And that's where we started seeing things like Bopis, which is buy, buy online, pick up and store. We start, you know, third party fulfillment. Yeah. But really, a lot of retailers were starting to uh, understand really more thoroughly how to engage the customer, both from an e-commerce standpoint and from uh, an experiential in-store perspective. Yeah. So the and those two, again, one wasn't necessarily taking away from the other. Uh, it was really more you're engaging the customer from a 360 angle rather than from, call it one point of entry. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. What was something that surprised you during 2020? That's a big question because a lot. <laughs> right, well. Like many, I was, unfortunately, my crystal balling of how long COVID would impact the world uh, was off by a lot. And I, I remember predicting back in, you know, the spring of 2020 that, you know, I, I, I thought that COVID would somehow pass through within call it six to eight months. And really that was just the beginning of the trough, I think yeah. with COVID. But I, I would say that the bigger surprises though, despite a lot of the pain that we saw uh, because of COVID uh, was the ability for so many retailers and restaurants and essential services providers to see how quickly they were able to pivot and really engage the, call it the new world that we were living in, implement, again, even new verticals or engagements with their customers, doing it very thoughtfully. And whether that's even grocery stores figuring out how to engage our customers only in the parking lot, letting them shop online and and sure. really being timely uh, with their deliveries to the parking lots or restaurateurs engaging more wholeheartedly the uh, third-party delivery services and or creating delivery services on their own um, to retailers, again, just being very creative in, in how they were able to reach their customer when the, the traditional forms were taken away from them. Yeah. So sure part of last year, you know, involved you thinking about this, you know, venture that you just kicked off and announced this year. I'm sure as with any kind of business that you launch, you're probably pondering, thinking about it for a while. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it just sort of came up to you in one, in one over one weekend. The pandemic accelerate your thinking around launching your own enterprise and kind of, you know, w what made you think that this is the right time to do that? You know, it's funny. What COVID provided me was uh, the first moment in my career to actually have time to think about it. And while it's always been an idea, it was buried uh, really deep in my mind and it never had the opportunity to surface. But when the world came to a screeching halt, and for us, I would tell you that from about March to June of 20, I mean, it was radio silence. And then from that point forward, we started to see the momentum pick up again. And again, just to educate the audience, you know, our deal cycles can range anywhere from six months to three to four years. So even if we're transacting in 2020, uh, you know, those are 21, 22 deals. But that, that moment in time really just gave me the opportunity to think through thoughtfully and really intentionally, if I were to take a step like that, how could it come together, how to put the pieces together, and really ultimately why I wanted to do it. Ultimately, what it came down to, I had to ask myself the question, you know, after 20 years, you know, I wasn't willing to let a few years pass and look back. And, you know, I, I asked myself the question, would I regret not doing this? Yeah. 
the the answer was an emphatic yes. And and after that moment in time, there was no turning back because the weight of regret is too heavy to live with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I can understand that feeling too, James. One of the things that where I guess you you and I have something in common. We started our business in the in the last recession, but it was right before the last recession. I don't think I I, I knew that a uh, that that something like the great financial crisis was going to be coming any anytime soon. But what I've learned since then is that actually starting a business in a recession is probably one of the best times to do that because um, you know everything changes. There's a there's a new kind of you know play you know following that you know turn of the cycle, if you will. And then you are really sort of setting yourself up for, you know, growth as the, as the industry sort of evolves, right, and, you know, transforms. How do you think some of those trends that you've identified earlier are going to shape themselves over the next, you know, few years? And where, where do you think your services will align with that? Great question. You know, I think the timing wasn't premeditated. I think the opportunity, again, arose during COVID, again, due to having a space in my career to actually uh, think and be thoughtful about it. But uh, our services are going to be more needed now than ever. And we have really evolved our role as a broker to be more in a consultant role and really as a partner uh, for both the the landlords and tenants that we represent. And uh, now even going through, uh, you know, like the old proverb, smooth seas don't make for skillful sailors. <laughs> yeah. We have more tools uh, in our belt now than ever before. Yeah. And I uh, now can take uh, all of the lessons learned uh, that we are continuing to learn every day, truthfully, and, uh, and apply those. Uh, but again, the goal, my new organization uh, was to be better tomorrow than today. And ultimately, we feel that the role that we are going to play in the industry is only going to be that much more important. Yeah, and it's interesting you use the word uh, consultant, and that's certainly that I'm you know hearing more and more in the you know brokerage community. I I feel the the industry is evolving really rapidly, and and that's that's another interesting aspect of I think where where you're heading. Because I've seen over the last couple of years, the firms have beginning have begun to ver- vertically integrate, so they're doing things that they didn't do in the past, right? And they're offering more services, right, to the to the industry than they than they had, let's say, you know, ten years or so ago, right? Uh, how do you think that will, you know, fare fare for you? I mean, from a, from a you know. You know, if you compare yourself to your, you know, former employer, where is the value that you can provide that a company of such big opportunity and services uh, won't be able to you know, compete with you? Well, one, I feel we have an opportunity to be much more bespoke to our clients' requirements. We have an opportunity to be more nimble because when you're not part of a large organization, uh, there's less process and. And my former employer, Cushman Wakefield, uh, they're, in my opinion, best in class in the industry. They are a group of highly performing, highly functional, highly educated individuals that are doing it at a very high level, and uh, which have made it so hard to leave. But for me personally, I felt that uh, without the process that is required within a large institutional firm, I'm able to act more quickly. Uh, to be able to do things, again, in a more focused fashion. One interesting part about what's, what's happening in the CRE industry is, you know, technology and resources are now becoming 
are, 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 are essentially leveling the playing field because there's no technology that is out there that is exclusive to any one company, large or small. And so uh, all of the services that I had before, or resources, I should say, are, I, I, I have now, and I'm continuing to grow upon. So it's, uh, it's really one where now I feel like I just have an ability to uh, make quicker decisions and really, again, tailor this, the needs of, tailor my services to the needs of my client base. Yeah, that's a very good point. Certainly, we've experienced that. You know, we're a much smaller media company than some of the other bigger publishers out there. But it's, you know, I think technology has been a great uh, equalizer for us and I think for many other firms. And it sort of allows you to, you know, be bigger than the number of people, right, that, that you have in the, in the operation. I also say that the, to further that point, you know, I think the you know the the client base that I work with uh, on the agency side range from large institu- institutional real estate investment trusts to the occupier side, which ranges from again publicly traded companies down to local and regional tenants. Um, again, that that client base hasn't changed at all. And again, part of that is uh, for a couple of reasons. One is again the resources that I can provide, uh, obviously, are the same if not better. But two. As far as you know, they're they're hiring uh, to right. be that consultant. It's, right. it's very rarely they're hiring the company. That's right. Yeah. Despite the fact that it obviously helps um, with the organization that you uh, or the jersey that you wear, but it, it it's not the most important thing. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I would agree a hundred percent there. So James, if you look at maybe twenty twenty one is too short of a time span, but over the next couple of years, few years. Would you mind giving us kind of an overview of where you think certain parts of the industry are, you know, heading into? So if you compare sort of the different retail sectors like, you know, big box, sort of, you know, urban central business district kind of stuff, right? Neighborhood shopping, just kind of an overview of what what you think is is going to perform well, which cases and kind of a market analysis, if you if you will. Absolutely. Starting with the urban core, uh, they have been, uh, the urban cores around the country have been impacted the most. And, you know, if you go to any financial district around the country, obviously because of COVID, it's a ghost town. I think until the office population, you know, returns to a even new normal, whatever that means, uh, those urban cores are going to continue to be impacted negatively. It's interesting because then you go to some neighboring high streets. Some have have continued to uh, have success, like places like Rodeo Drive, uh, whereas others like Union Square in San Francisco have seen uh, market rents soften considerably. So, um, it, unfortunately, they're they are very they're very unique to themselves, depending on the market. But at the, you know, we've seen that urban environment be impacted very heavily. On the contrary, we've seen uh, a lot of the suburban markets thrive. Uh, There's really been a flight to quality. So a lot of the uh, B and C product, call it, in the suburban markets uh, continue to suffer. But the essential service anchored shopping center environments have really done well and ultimately haven't seen that much softening in rents. I mean, there's been some creative deal deal making to get people through this moment in time, yeah. But ultimately, there's still a, a very high demand uh, from the big box down to again 
even, you know, smaller, call it quick service, you know, restaurant um, requirements. So um, again, is the velocity at where it was pre-COVID? Definitely not. But are we seeing the trajectory head in a positive direction? 100%. So when uh, you have, uh, you know, strong uh, grocery performers, when you have uh, even large general merchandisers like Target or Costco, you know, they have seen year-over-year numbers that have, you know, really been very impressive. And, and that even goes to to home goods or even hardware services. Uh, so there's, it's, it's really been an interesting phenomenon to watch, really, the success of a lot of these tenants. And then, unfortunately, also, uh, a lot of the tenants who have suffered more that, unfortunately, you know, were not able to stay open during COVID. Yeah. Restaurants are part of the you know retail landscape and they're you know hurting although some have been very successful by their ability to kind of turn things around there's this notion of you know ghost kitchens popping up i know there's some venture capital firms involved in sort of looking at that as sort of sort of a uh, you know larger scale kind of thing are are there any examples like that or and, and not just in food but but just overall throughout retail anything that you have seen over the last year that, um, you know, are sort of case studies for kind of really exemplary kind of innovation and things that are evolving that you think will going, is is going to drive the market in the, in the future? Great question. You know, we've seen, you know, the ghost kitchen phenomenon started even pre COVID, uh, and continues the demand for that, uh, is waning a bit. And, and here's the reason a lot of the people in the market thought that with all of this second generation space out there with tenants, you know, potentially vacating their spaces, uh, there's an opportunity for to step in and, and really have a turnkey environment where you can go and, and create that ghost kitchen environment. The problem with that is, you know, in shopping centers, they are typically, you know, laden with exclusive use classes. So a ghost kitchen can come in, but they may not be able to uh, serve certain types of cuisines interesting <laughs> even even though even though it's all for delivery right right and and because what happens is is a an asian tenant might be in there that has an exclusive that no other tenant can have more than call it 10 percent of their gross sales uh, be asian food and I'm, I'm speaking very loosely but if there's you know if you are in a shopping center environment and there are multiple food uses uh you can often assume that a lot of those tenants will have exclusive use clauses, and so the and and the impact on parking uh, with a lot of these ghost kitchens can be uh, unfortunately not in their favor because you know with all these delivery services coming in and out, uh, the parking typically will be uh, negatively impacted, and so a lot of landlords unfortunately are not that interested in in pursuing a lot of these. So what we've seen is a lot of these ghost kitchens pivot and go into more of a commissary environment, uh, which is, again, more outside of the retail, you know, landscape, if you will. Yeah. And and more kind of in an industrial sort of environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's been, but again, as far as other case, study goes, case studies goes, I think there is a misnomer that, you know, all restaurants have have uh, crashed and burned during, uh, during COVID. While that is partly true, um, especially when we were, at the highest tier of restrictions and, and that being purple in our market where, you know, even outdoor dining uh, wasn't available. Um, really, that was when we saw some interesting concepts 
saw them pivot positively and create again um, other verticals that they didn't have, uh, even full service sit down concepts, which never potentially even had an online presence, pushing a lot of resources into, into a new delivery vertical that again didn't exist uh, because of you know what they do right and. As far as having, you know, they're, they're a full service restaurant, which is the whole experience is about being in the restaurant. But again, and, and people leveraging a lot of those uh, third party delivery services. But uh, not everybody suffered, you know, during COVID as much as everyone would think. Interesting. Yeah, that is a very interesting point. I have noticed also in our neighborhood, we have this uh, one Asian restaurant that I think has done better than perhaps it was before. I mean, you've got orders coming out of that front door. I mean, you know, I try to order on a Friday night. I mean, forget it. it's like a three-hour wait just for pickup, uh, which is which is really interesting, right? So absolutely, and we, we you know with the amount of shopping centers that we work on, we track a lot of sales. Yeah, uh, you know, year over year, and I have multiple examples of tenants who year over year did better in 2020 than they did in 19. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, it's a, it's a head scratcher, but it, the numbers don't lie. And it points to the to the ingenuity of the entrepreneur. I mean, all, ultimately, you know, if if you're of the mindset that you have to pivot quickly and be flexible and figure out a new way of, you know, revenue and uh, just be nimble, right? Um, as you talked about your, you know, business too, right? I mean, uh, be able to make decisions fast and, you know, quick and try things and test things. I mean... You know, uh, it, it's not unlike what you know you and I are doing in our businesses as well, right? I mean, that's that's kind of what you have to do to survive, right? Well, it's a constant reinvention process, and yeah, that goes yeah. for a- any business line. And for those who say who stayed stagnant, you know, expected the same results without changing anything, which is ultimately the definition of, in, of insanity, <laughs> right? Right. Unfortunately, those were the ones that failed. Yeah. But the ones that were creative and nimble and were able to pivot, uh, you know, we saw some very, very positive results. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. So, James, as you look at you know the rest of 2021, you know, you you kicked off your uh, you know enterprise. Where is your focus for the you know remainder of the year and into into next year? Are you going to try and hire some people, bring in some uh, you know services? Uh, you know, where where do you go? Yeah, absolutely. So my goal with the firm isn't to build the next global CRE firm. My goal really is to establish an organization with like-minded individuals that are aligned with their principles and core values. Uh, I'm not looking to build the Army or Navy. I I want to build the SEALs and I want the best in class. And so I'm not in a hurry to grow, but I am being very uh, thoughtful and uh, specific with the type of individual that I want in the organization. Uh, I've already established my staff uh, as it relates to the back of house with regards to, you know, my resources with marketing and graphics, GIS, things like that. But um, as far as bringing on new bodies, really, again, that's not uh, that the headcount isn't the goal. It's, sure. it's, it's, it's much more of a qualitative execution than it is a quantitative. Uh, so I, you know, I will be growing. I am having conversations with quite a few folks, but again, there's no hurry uh, to the finish line with that. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Everything that's happened over the last year has been, you know, challenging. What gives you hope? Lots, lots. Well, for one, I don't think it can get worse. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> considering we were at a complete standstill, uh, you know, last spring and summer. To where we are now, I mean, we've visit, we are busier now than we've ever been. 
uh, not sure a lot of it that, of what we're working on is uh, heading uh, towards uh, the end zone, if you will. But again, our focus is really on on the service and not the fee. And so we're we're constantly uh, just trying to move the ball downfield. Uh, that could be one yard, that could be ten yards, that could be thirty yards. But the direction the industry is heading is very positive. Uh, we feel like the rebound is uh, very much in effect. And again, we're seeing new tenants uh, come to the market every day. Uh, new requirements come to the market every day. And this, again, is from um, all over the world. The great thing about being in Northern California, uh, like we've seen in other cycles, we're typically the last to fail and first to recover. Uh, now, last the, this last uh, uh, event, unfortunately, everybody failed at the exact same time <laughs> globally, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is probably the most coordinated effort I've ever seen. <laughs> I know in my lifetime of any kind of business cycle, but um, again, uh, because of the fundamentals here in Northern California, both with the demographics, uh, the, the employment base, you know, the education base here, and even, even to things like the climate, we were just always primed uh, for a quick recovery, but uh, we couldn't be more optimistic. Uh, things are again, heading the right direction. And, and, you know, we often consider ourselves traffic engineers in the retail space. You know, we sit in the middle of the intersection every day, look at every car that drives by. We can tell you their make and model, who's driving it, how old they are, where they live, how old their children are sitting in the backseat, the type of wheels that they have on their car, what's what they keep in their trunk. Uh, and and because we, we see that traffic, uh, we really have a pulse on, you know, call it how many cars are passing per day. Now, you know, call it you know, nine months ago, that was probably one or two cars on the intersection. Well, that that is now probably more like 100 to 200 cars in the intersection. Yeah. So we're really seeing the velocity pick up every day and are excited about both the near term and long term. James, where can the industry find more about your company? Great place to go would be my website, which is theeconiccompany.com. It'll give people a good overview of the type of business we work on, our background and where we came from and where we're going. But they can always also reach out to me directly. And my email is jchung at theeconiccompany.com. James, always a pleasure chatting with you. Best of luck in your new venture and look forward to you know chatting with you in the future again. Stay safe. Thank you, Vladimir. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business.